The Deep Dive with Nick Baby. Welcome to The Deep Dive with Nick Babel. I'm your host, Nick Babel. My guest today is Chris Xaver. She is the chair, the chair of com- the Communications and Media Arts Department and a professor at my alma mater, Tompkins Cortland Community College, also known as TC3, where she was one of my main professors in college and really inspired me a lot in my career path or paths that I've taken uh, since college. Chris, thanks for doing the podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you. Finally, it took us a while to connect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's more stuff that's happened in, in the world we can talk about. So that's not necessarily bad, right? Def- definitely. Um, so my introduction did not really do your career justice. Um, so I have some questions for you about your career in journalism and television broadcasting, you know, and, you know, and uh, teaching. So I read that you were born in Woodstock, Illinois. Um, how did you end up in central New York? Oh, man. Uh, so I'll, I'll make that quicker than it really is. Um, so born in Illinois, and like so many of today's children back in the 60s, it was rare, though, you know, my parents divorced. So uh, once that happened, one went to one place, one went to another. And so I started traveling, you know, and as a young kid, I moved from Illinois to California, Indiana. And then as a young married person, I got married very, very young. Um, we moved too, And so we started in Virginia and Pennsylvania. And my husband was a, a defense contractor and he ended up at GE um, in Syracuse. And I had moved now so much as, you know, a kid, I was like, you know, so later as as our relationship was, you know, ending, it was 15 years in, um, I just, he was moving to Illinois, back to Illinois. And I'm like, I've been there. Um, and I've kind of got some roots here now. I'm going to stay. And so I've actually, this is the longest I've ever been in one place <laughs> in my life. I have been here. My son now is 34 years old. He just had a birthday yesterday. And I'm realizing we've been here, or I've been here since he was a year old. And it's the longest I've held roots in one spot. So central New York now feels like home and yeah. it's kind of nice to have, you know, you go to the store, you, you see people, you know, and, you know, former students are married and having families. And <laughs> so that's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Definitely. Um, so what made you decide to get into journalism and television? Um, I know you, you know, you did radio and anchors. Yeah. So I started in radio, you know, you'd always heard my whole life. Oh, you've got a voice for radio. So when you hear that, it kind of puts it into your mind. I better go into that. And I started in radio as a DJ and I'm telling you, no offense to any DJs out there. I was bored out of my brains. (laughs) I mean, I just couldn't have been more bored. And, you know, this was in the eighties, but there just wasn't much to do except queue up the next song. And you're sitting there waiting to queue up the next song. And you know, when I started out was records, you know, we're back timing records. And <laughs> at least that was a little bit more active than today's world, which is digitized. And I was standing over the AP machine, just waiting for news to come up. This was pre-internet. And I, I just couldn't stand it. I would bring a newspaper in with me each day and devour the newspaper for content to talk about as a DJ. And I just was so bored, you know, like this couldn't be more boring. <laughs> I, you know, I love communicating with our audience, but I, I just, I needed more. 
And um, I always thought, oh, I've got a face for radio. I'm never going to go on to, you know, anything with, with television. And one of my professors over, I started at OCC, um, had a great experience there. And I was, I applied kind of on a lark to the Newhouse School, never thinking I'm going to get in. I mean, honestly, never thinking it. As a matter of fact, there's kind of a funny story with that. You know, I apply and, and you get your letter and your letter is going to either tell you you got in or you're rejected. And the, the letter comes and it's a single page. And I'm like thinking to myself, oh no, this isn't good. And my son is like three years old, four years old. He's in his little car seat in the back of the car. We pull into the garage and I'm holding this letter. And he's like, mommy, aren't you going to open it? And I said, well, I don't know, but honey, you know, it might be good news. It might be bad. He goes, well, open it and find out. He was always <laughs> a sage, you know, always a yeah. sage. And I said, uh, okay. So I open it and I read it and it's like, congratulations. And I'm thinking, why wasn't it filled with all these, you know, you have to do this, you have to do this. You okay. Okay. Congratulations. And so he goes, good news or bad news. And I said, honey, it's good news. Mommy got into a school that she really wants to go to. And he goes, you know, mom, it could be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and he, to this day just cracks me up and actually happened to a university one time. So oh, uh, he's right. It could have been a joke, um, <laughs> but the whole thing just was so funny. So I got into Newhouse and, you know, I went over into their television, radio, their broadcast journalism, thinking I would be kind of maybe an NPR reporter or work for, you know, something along those lines. And one of my professors, his name was Michael Kromitas, um, you know, he kept saying to me, you're really good on camera. And I'm like, face for radio, face for radio. And Don Torrance, then another a professor there said, you're not only good on camera, I want to show you something. And so he showed me a non-traditional reporter out of Florida who kind of broke all the, the rules. She was heavier than most. She wasn't uh, a Barbie doll. She wasn't as attractive. Um, you know, I had, I've had a nose job since that time, but he, he kind of said, you know, don't let the stereotypes define you. You go do what you want to do. You have the ability to make this happen. And so, I don't know, he just instilled something in me where I thought, geez, Maybe I could do this. I, I don't know. Um, and if somebody starts to believe in you, then you start to believe in you. Definitely. And yeah, it was it was really cool. So that's what just started it. And then another professor, I was getting my master's. He calls me up one day and he says, uh, hey, what are you doing on a Tuesday? I'm like, oh. And uh, he's like, hey, you're going to go interview for a job down in Ithaca. I went, okay. And it really was, you've got a job down in Ithaca. Don't screw this up. Um, you know, that's really what it was. And Don Edwards essentially got me my first job in television. Um, and, you know, it kind of comes full circle because I just, you know, saw on social media last night before I went to bed, like at one in the morning, that Dan Cummings is going to be retiring. And it was Dan Cummings' sister, Molly, who hired me for my first oh, gig. Wow. So Dan, you know, feels like family to me because Molly, you know, gave me my break. And, and Dan's uh, been, he's one of the staples up up there 37 years he's wow. been um you know and and he's oh the most consummate professional ever he's fantastic and you learn a lot when you hang around absolutely marvelous professionals like that they're extraordinary and i consider dan a friend um you know he's he's amazing so yeah you know and wayne you know wayne mahar um mm -hmm. who is retiring as well you know, Wayne is, is just this amazing professional who I've watched for years, both as a colleague at Channel 3, but then 
as my students have come into those organizations, both at nine and at three, and I've watched these people mentor them as their young professionals coming up. You know, it's, you, they don't get better than that. Um, when they, they find a hometown, they stick with it and, you know, they work their territory well. And both yeah. of those men did that. Yeah, I mean, Syracuse has, and for people that don't know, the Newhouse School is in Syracuse University. It's probably the best broadcasting college in the U.S. I, I mean, it's right well, up Well, you know, as an alum, we like to say that, but, you know, they rank two, three. Uh, they share it with a couple of other universities, yeah. but they're top tier. Um, they are. And we live in central New York. We have Ithaca College, the Park School here, too, who is right. also extraordinary. We are ex- surrounded by, and I'm not kidding you, we are surrounded right in the hub of about 15 top tier universities. I mean, just for what we do, you know, because I do, I teach, um, you know, journalism is, is probably now my smallest program. Um, you know, I have television and audio, and then I have digital cinema, and that has morphed into my largest um, area where students are, are transferring. Um, so it's amazing how many amazing schools are right here that students now have the opportunity to go and then expand, start here, go there, and do whatever you want. Because my goodness, we have a film studio right in Liverpool, New York, that's pumping out five, seven films a year that students can go and get involved with. You have a student right now who's doing an internship with them um, reading screenplays and, you know, reads a screenplay a month, gives them feedback. Um, You know, he's doing that with Newhouse students. Um, You know, how wonderful is that? You know, the Newhouse students are doing this. Ithaca College students are doing this. And Duncan's Cortland students are doing this, you know? I mean, if you're good, you're good. If you know what you're doing, you can get in. And that's an amazing thing. It builds up those resumes and gets you on set, which is pretty spectacular. Yeah, you know, it's funny how how you were talking about how um, that teacher kind of, you know, told you just, you know, go for it. It's what you're meant to do and stuff. You kind of did that for me because I don't know if you know this. I, I kind of wanted to be a sportscaster when I went to TC3. And, uh, you know, after doing it a little bit, doing some classes, um, it wasn't, it, I don't know. I just didn't fall in love with the on-camera stuff. But, you know, you told me after we, I had that one class, um, media, law, and ethics, um, and you, you said, you know, your writing is really good. I think I, you said I had the top, I got like a 97 on that real long paper we had to write. And you, you know, you said, you just kind of like encouraged me with my writing. So, you know, I kind of went from there and I've, I've, you know, I worked at newspapers for like six years. Um, now I'm a private investigator and, I still use a lot of the writing and interviewing techniques um, with that. So, you know, just wanted to mention that and, you know, thank you for that. I, you know, I so appreciate that. And what I appreciate too, though, is that you understand we all have kind of a dream and ideal. I'm still not on Oprah's network. You know, (laughs) I'm ready for my own gig on Oprah's network and she has not yet called and found me. I don't know why. Um, (laughs) So we have kind of our, our dream and our ideal and our backup plan right? Because we all have to have 
a backup. Um, there's some realistic things that we do. And it doesn't mean that our dream may not still happen. I mean, people find careers in their 60s and 70s where things spring up. And I'm not convinced I'm still not going to be on Oprah's network someday. I mean, right. it may still be happening. You know, I just turned 55. I'm not 80. Um, and even at 80, it's still not over. Um, you know, you you see where people just sometimes things have a rhythm and a flow and they find themselves. But we also have to listen to those who I think who are watching us who say you have something and I see something in you and let's go with that. And, you know, your private eye, how cool is that? Um, and because you're a writer too, is that going to end up morphing into a novel series? Will that end up morphing into, you know, some sort of a screenplay that you end up writing? You never know what's going to happen with that, but it may. And that's what's yeah. cool about how life just takes you in directions that you don't expect. Definitely. Sorry, I'm calling the dog and I'm trying not to interrupt a thought. Oh, that's Leroy, right. come here. Leroy, lay down right now. Lay down. The two dogs are jumping and deciding they're, they're about ready to get into a little twisty tangle. And I don't want them to do that. So I got them under control here. Okay, got it. So how did you go from, you know, television and on your personality to becoming Professor X? <laughs> you know, the, the best part of, of being an on-air personality and, and teaching and reporting was working with my interns. You know, one of my interns was Jeff Glor of CBS News. Jeff oh, Glor was the lead anchor on CBS News, you know? I, like, I look at him and I'm like, that was my crush kid. That was my intern, you know? He was following me around. He was at the Newhouse School. and um, But here's what was so wonderful about that. I would have these fantastic reporter wannabes who were, you know, interns who were still in college. And I would have a different one every day of the week. And Jeff was like, I'm imagining Tuesday. Veronica was on Wednesday. Um, you know, I'd have uh, Elizabeth on Thursday. And when they would go out with me, I would let them come back and write their own story. And I'm going to tell you the truth. There were times that their story was better than mine. I'm like, dang, okay. And I would chat with them. Why'd you do it this way? What were you thinking? You know, and I found I was teaching and learning from them. And it was an extraordinary experience. And I knew I stayed and got my master's at, you know, you didn't need a master's to be a reporter. I did that because I knew eventually I'm going to want to be a teacher. Eventually I'll get tired of running all over and covering breaking news and, you know, doing all of that. I'll, I'll get tired of that. I'll want to be a teacher and I want to be ready for that and have that master's in my back pocket. So when I want to do this, I'm ready. But I just found that while I loved the breaking news and I loved running here and running there, I didn't love covering school board stories. I didn't love covering, you know, the same Halloween story over and over and over. And, and you know, my challenge was to make it unique and different each time. And, and that's the challenge of a reporter. You've got to do that. Um, but I really fell in love with working with the interns. And that was exciting to me. So I had already interviewed this guy, Brooke Sanders, who had been the chair at TC3. And he had won Jeopardy twice. And so I just on a whim sent him something. I was just having this, you know, epiphany, like really enjoying working with these students. I bet it's going to take 10 or so years of being an adjunct instructor before I'll ever get to break into it, you know? So I reached out to Brooks, who was at Tompkins Cortland and said, hey, you know, I just want to throw this out. You know, I interviewed you. You met me. Um, if you ever need somebody to do an adjunct class, just one, I'd love to do it while I'm still you know, reporting. And he said, 
how does next week start sound? And I'm like, <laughs> what? And he said, the guy who's supposed to do the class next week can't do it. The class is at three in the after, or no, it's at 10 in the morning. And I didn't work until three in the afternoon. And I'm like, what day is? And, you know, he's like Tuesday and Thursday. Well, I can do a 10 in the morning. Can I be out of there? He's like, you'd be out by noon. Shoot, drive time back to Syracuse. I, I'm in, I'm in. Okay, I'll do it. So I, I did that class. And then about 12 weeks in, he said to me, I'm going to retire next semester. And I've named you as my replacement. And I went, what? I'm still working. I'm, I'm, what? And I literally came home that night and said to my partner, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, you're a dumbass if you don't take that. <laughs> he's like, you know, I know you love reporting, but you just got offered a gig to, you know, potentially be a full-time faculty member at a SUNY school. Like, you know, this could take you 10 years plus to even get into this role. You need to seriously consider this. And of course, I didn't, I can't, they can't hand it to me. You know, there's a selection committee and a process mm -hmm. and all of this. And so I put my hat in the ring and I got it. And it's like, what just happened? Um, <laughs> so honestly, my first two real gigs, I didn't really apply for, you know, uh, Don Edwards at Newhouse called up Molly Cummings and there I am a reporter at, at New Center 7. And, you know, I start doing this little part-time hustle at <laughs> TC3 and the next thing you know, I'm the chair of the program. And it's like, what just happened? Um, so that's kind of neat. Yeah, definitely. But, <laughs> like you said, it's weird how life goes, you know? Yeah, what, much better what, than working in the pickle factory. What year did uh, you become chair? 1999. Okay. 1999. I got hired. And uh, so I, I uh, did my first, you know, class like in the spring. And then by fall, I was chair and on, on, boom, three programs. Here you go. It's all yours. Wow. Like, whoa. Okay. And that was a learning curve, you know, because some of the stuff I knew, of course, you know, anything journalism, I got it. Anything law and ethics, I got it. But studio production, I was the girl in front of the camera. Now, all of a sudden, I've got studio production classes. I'm like, holy smokes. <laughs> Luckily, there was a full-time engineer there who was like, I will be in this room with you. I'm going to help you. And I was always in all of those spaces. You know, at New Center 7, we were a small production. So I was in those spaces with those folks doing that work. Mm. I just wasn't proficient at it. You know, I wouldn't call myself an expert. I'd done it, you know, but it was like, <laughs> you know, and so now I'm suddenly like, I got to get this really, really good quick. And then what I quickly learned was I'm hiring these. You know, I can't teach every one of these classes. Right. I will hire the best and bring them in quickly. And so that's when... You know, I started hiring Jerry Gambell and Chrissy Guest and, you know, other people. I hired, you know, sportscasters from Channel 9, um, Stephen Fonte, who came and started teaching classes for me. And, you know, luckily, because I worked in the business, I knew people. And I was like, you want to teach a class? Right. Come on down. And, you know, I kept the areas where I was an expert and then hired out those other expert uh, areas of expertise. Yeah, I must have been in one of your pretty early classes because I think I started there in 2002. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You'd have been on the early end of things when I'm like pulling people in and, and <laughs> folding folks in as quick as I can. I'm I'm calling up the network quickly, you know, begging people to to come and assist. So, yes, and I remember Don Baisley. Um, yeah, he was the other really main professor. Good guy. Um you know, I was like the last year, I don't know if you remember this, 
that we were still doing editing on um, tape. On, tape uh, to tape? Non-linear yeah. tape to tape. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that. <laughs> you know why I miss it? It's not just nostalgia. Here's why. Because you're a better editor when you can't fart around and just record everything, just spray it and spray it and spray it. And then oh, I'll come back and sit there with tons of content and sift through it. When you have to sit there and say, all right, I've only got a few minutes. I have to grab really good shots because I don't want to wade through all of this. Plus it's a finite piece of tape. Right. You know, you can't just run and run and run. So you become a much more judicious editor. You're just better. I really miss it. And you can see it from the old school shooters. You'll see that they're much more honed with right. what they do on the front end. They don't have to do it on the back end because they just like, they know, okay, let me grab this. Let me, here's where we're going to go. We're going to do our sequence shooting in camera so that when we jump it into the editor, it's there. They just, they're better. Yeah. I just don't know how else to say it. They're just better. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, that's honestly helped me edit the podcast a little bit. I know now it's digital, yeah, but still just the, the cutting, you know, and stuff like that. It's, it kind of brought me back to my college days. Like, uh, you know, I know the real, the tape to tape was different. I, I don't know if, you know, it's been so long. I don't know if I sat down in front of it. I could, I probably could figure it out eventually, but. Oh, um, you would, you'd know, insert in and, you know, boop, 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 boop. you'd do it so fast and so quick. <laughs> you know, we have one just for archive purposes, um, you know, still there, but it's, it's amazing how I, I could do that in my sleep still, you know, scrub it back and forth and rah, rah, rah. I could even hear my voice backwards. You know, you're editing so fast. You're like, that's me. Oh, no, that's my interview. Cut it here. Um, you know, because you just, you know, but it's it's fun. You know, that stuff is, it, it's amazing. You know, for the, for the kids who are coming up today, because they're in a, in a digital world, it is, it's a very different thing. And, and oftentimes, at least with my students, I find they, they don't value as much pre-planning. And so they'll just go out and kind of freeform it more. And, you know, sometimes you'll get really lucky or you'll have a subject who knows what, where they want to take you or, you know, whatever. But pre-planning really, really does help to kind of get you where you want to go. And now I'm going to jump with the hat of the digital cinema producer. You know, I just came from a film fest yesterday where, you know, I, I'm going to brag for just a moment because I'm excited about this. Yeah. Our students really held them their own against the Park School, against Cornell, against some other um, you know, community colleges, and they did well. Um, you know, they got four awards, two first place and two honorable mentions. Nice. And the one honorable mention, I think it's because there was just nobody else in that category. You know, it was a music video and nobody else had it. And so they're like, okay, we're gonna give you an honorable mention because we don't have a category, but wow. Um, and so why I'm, I'm saying this is some of those films that I was watching, in, in particular documentaries, and I'm going to be real careful because people are going to then go watch and see what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. There's a documentary there from Cornell. I could have helped them script doctor that. And I, there's a part of me, if I had time, if I was free, I would love to reach out to this person and help them script doctor it right. and pull it down by 50%. Because the feedback immediately, not just from my six students who were standing there, but just talking to people is like, I was falling asleep in the documentary. Shame on that documentarian for allowing them to fall asleep because the documentary 
was powerful. There were points in that documentary where the hair on my, my arms stood up, where I had tears in my eyes. That's why it won. Yeah. But it was way too long, way too long, 50% too long. And that happens and in it, documentaries sometimes. And the journalist in me is like, I could have helped you cut this. But part of it was you didn't go there with a plan. You didn't know what am I trying to tell? What's my story? And anything that doesn't tell my story, shut the camera off right. because it's not telling my story. So they were waiting through tons of footage and then it felt like, well, it's pretty good. Let me throw it in there. They didn't have a thesis statement essentially and an outline and they didn't break it down almost like a paper and then keep everything in there nice and tight to what it should be. And that's all a documentary is, which is really just telling a story the way you would tell a really nice and tight written paper. Yeah. And so when they're going off on this tangent and this tangent and going here and going there, that's when people were falling asleep because it was just too long. And I'm sitting there watching it going, I can show you the exact shots and scenes, the interviews, cut it out, not relevant, get it out of here, cut this out, not relevant, get it out, cut this out, not relevant, get it out of here. Um, and my heart was hurting for them because yes, they wanted this festival, but it's a smaller festival they may want to apply to bigger international film festivals and they're not going to win. Right. And they're not going to win for the reason that you lose the audience through the piece. And what a shame. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, we've got to keep things. We've got to understand as documentarians, we're journalists. We have to keep the focus tight as filmmakers. We have to keep it interesting. We have to have acts, first act, second act, third act. We have to keep people involved. And there were no acts happening in this piece. There, as a journalist, it was just. It's kind of funny. I, I watch stuff in that lens myself. You know, I mean, I just I did the newspaper reporting for like six years. So, it, um, and plus, obviously, was taught by you and and stuff. So, I I watch a lot of stuff like that in documentaries, and I'm always like saying to my wife, I'm like, what, like who edited this? Like, right? There was the the one on Netflix. It was. Um, about that hotel in California, the, uh, I'm not gonna be able to think of the name of it, but it's a hotel where that there's a famous murder. Um, the girl was found in the water tower or whatever. And they made it two, three episodes too long. It was like an eight episode, uh, you know, and they were just repeating stuff or just getting off on stupid tangents that had nothing to do with the story. And I, you know, I, Shame on them. And I think part of that is they probably got more money for doing two or three more episodes. But anybody that watched that could have been like, that wasn't that good because you went three episodes too long. Dude, I've already seen it. You know, come on, tell me something new. I'm bored. Yeah. Um, and exactly. And most people won't stick with something once they get, you know, if it's like you, you beat me over the head with this, I'm done with you. You know, yeah. I, I'm done. So we want to cut to the chase. We want to get there quick. And we don't want to be bored with something. And when someone bores us, we're out, man. Right. We are just out. We're like, enough. <laughs> so, you know, um, and that's the wonderful thing I love about, you know, the, the cinema, the digital cinema end of things is really understanding and being able to work with students on you tighten that script up. 
you tighten that, you know, as you're doing your shot sheet, as you're, you know, um, you know, working with your storyboard and you're putting this out, don't bore your audience. Don't give them too much. Um, you know, make sure you're telling your story, but listen to the feedback. If somebody's telling you, you know, this is what I'm experiencing, then you go back in and you do a reshoot if you need to. You go back mm. in and you tweak, you change um, because you, you're, you know, feedback is the best gift possible. If somebody's telling you, you know, get right in. You know, the thing, I know this sounds so, so small, but this is in news. We always said, give people news they can use. I'm going to give your audience just something they can use. I think the worst thing possible you can ever say to somebody is, hi, how are you? You don't give a crap how I am. You really don't. Sure. It's just the most wasted sentence ever. Cut to the chase. Hi, great to see you. Or hi, thanks for being here. But hi, how are you? You don't care. Right. I could say to you, my life is imploding. Everything is going wrong, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, okay. And nodding <laughs> and keep walking. You know, the hi, how are you? As you're walking down the hall, you know, I give the fantastic because, you know, right. nobody cares. They just don't care. And on the telephone, it's so wasted. It's a pleasantry that's a, a redundant, wasted pleasantry. And as a journalist, I'm not going to waste words. No way, man. You know, I'll say, hi, thanks for the thanks for your time or hi, um, appreciate you, you know, giving me a moment or whatever. Get right to it. And you'll realize on a lot of call in shows, if, if somebody will do that, they, the talent will just ignore them. You know, right. they'll blow back past it because they, they're not going to waste the time on I'm doing great. And you, yeah. you know, it, it's all pleasantry that's BS, man. Got past it. It's not worth the energy. It's just not. And that's the nonsense that ends up going into these experiences where people don't want to hear this stuff. It's not of use to them. It's not benefit. It doesn't make their life better. It doesn't take them into that next level take it out. Right. And, you know, that's where a, a mindful, smart documentarian journalist or filmmaker sees it and says, this isn't moving my story, my article, my podcast, my theme, my whatever forward, I need to pull it out. Um, mm. And that's a really important thing for them to be able to do. Definitely. And that reminded me, the, the pleasantry thing, that reminds me of Bill Murray, because he's like in... Um, uh, Groundhog's Day when the woman's like how are you and he's like he starts telling her all this stuff she's like oh you didn't really want to know <laughs> like, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> by the way just a, a weird FYI that was shot in Woodstock Illinois where I was born oh wow. and so in the in the scene where they're on like it looks like a square a town square yeah. that was my childhood was going there was a Buster Brown shoe store and a little dress <laughs> shop that my grandma would take me to and we would go and get my little shoes, my Easter outfit, whatever. So when I watch that movie and I see them right there, I'm immediately taken back to my grandmother who's since passed, but right in that spot and that town. And my parents grew up there, all of that. And I'm like, oh, that's right there. We shot there. That's and that's funny. kind of their claim to fame, you know, is Bill Murray was here and we had the crew and, you know, but yeah, you can see all those little stores there and where my grandma used to walk me and where my aunt grew up and my mom and my, you know, they're twins. Uh, just really neat, you know, to, and it's so neat when you see those things um, wherever and you're like, yeah. I know that place. I, I can see that, you know, and I love now that Syracuse area is, you know, showing up in films and yeah. real life locations are showing up in films. Plan B, you know, is coming out. It's going to be, you know, in films and you can, you know, turn it on and go, oh, that's something, you know, that I know this location. I, I, I've been there. I've walked these streets. 
that there's nothing cooler than that. And that's kind of reminds me of old Twilight Zone episodes because Rod Sterling was, you know, from Ithaca area. And they Absolutely. would mention Cortland, Ithaca, Syracuse, Binghamton, Elmira. Well, and, you know, in just, you know, because I teach an audio class, we have so many rock people. We have so many, you know, the Rods, um, you know, are, are right here. But it's because Ronnie Dio was, you know, from the Cortland area. And so many people don't realize how many people of prominence are right within your midst, live in your hometown, yeah. and you don't know it. Um, you know, this just this past weekend, um, uh, Scott Williams from NCIS was back here at Cortland. Um, Scott Williams is the executive producer and head screenwriter from NCIS. He went to Cortland State. So he was back here at Cortland. You know, he always comes back for the Cortica jug um, and he comes back and hangs out. But, you know, Scott Williams, because he was stomping around Cortland for so many years and then, you know, now he writes and lives and works in L.A. and in the Hollywood area. He puts little nods to Cortland in there all the time. You know, he'll say something about the dark horse, you know, which is on Main Street in Cortland. And all of the locals are like, wow, or anybody who (laughs) went to school at Cortland, they will catch it. And hey, Scott Williams, um, you know, you're making a reference to your your home, you know, what he considers his hometown um, because it's where he went to college. Um, And it's just it's really cool. People don't realize it. And, you know, next week I have. Um, a Grammy nominated, you know, musician coming to speak to students. And he works all over the world with some of the biggest artists ever. And he lives in Freeville. And, you know, some of those artists will be in Freeville recording at his studio. They're flying in and out of Ithaca or in and out of Syracuse. Nobody knows it. And, you know, or they'll take a, you know, a vehicle and and be escorted up just by a black car, uh, you know, to his place spend a few days there and then leave. Nobody knows that these folks are right here in upstate New York. And it's like, you've got amazing talent right here. If, if you understood and knew the amount of talent in this community, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, it, it's really, truly phenomenal. And you know, I'll get frustrated when a student will say to me, you have to leave here to you know, go and do stuff. No, you don't. You have to just want to do something. You have to know how to meet right. the right people. And you have to, I think the most important thing, you have to broadcast your intentions. Because if you're telling people what you're interested in doing, someone will then go, you know, I know somebody. And then if they think you're really serious and really good, they might make an introduction. Yeah. And that introduction could be the start of something big. You know, yeah. you can't just wish it into happening. Manifesting doesn't just wish into being. But if you're working your craft, if you've written a bunch of songs, if you've written your screenplays, if you're a journalist and you have the articles and you're doing them, you intentionally tell people what it is that you're trying to do. Somebody just might make that connection for you and help you in a way that you just didn't know was going to happen. But they can't read your mind if, you know, they're sitting next to you at a game or, uh, you know, at a play or playing even an online game with them in a virtual world. And, you know, they're like, hey, dude, what do you do? And you don't say what you do or what you're trying to do. And they don't know. And they can't tell you, oh, my brother does that. And then you're like, what? My brother does what? Um, Can I chat with your brother someday? You know, people just don't know how small the world really is. And they need to. I agree. I agree. I've been, that's a lesson I've learned, you know, the last few years is, it's a real small world and 
Um, you know, Hollywood's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a dying idea, but it's, if you read the tea leaves, everybody's realizing you can work from home or you can work from wherever you want to in the digital age. Um, you, it, you know, it, de- it depends on what you want to do. Uh, yeah, yeah. I agree, Nick. There are certain things, you know, if you're an amazing, you know, SFX effect effects artist, you can send that stuff in. They're going to send it to you. You can get it done and they will send it back and they will appreciate that you did this. And, you know, all is good. Um, you know, some places, if, if you want to work your way up in some Hollywood stuff, you're going to need to get to, you know, New York, LA, uh, Atlanta, you know, maybe even Buffalo's doing some stuff now. Like I said, Syracuse is doing some stuff, but you're gonna have to cut your chops being a PA to start. You know, I mean, this is your very first jobs. So you've got to be a PA. You got to get on a set. You know, you got to you got to work those sets um, to begin with. They're not going to say, hey, but, you know, writers, my goodness, you can sell that first screenplay never having stepped anywhere near Hollywood. Right. Um, you know, you get somebody to read that. Um, you know, you can do that. Now, does it help um, when you're, you know, working on a set and you start to know some people? Scott Williams, though, who has sold, you know, and is a, is a head writer for NCIS, he ended up getting his break from Sean Penn while he was an, a, a, a bartender in New York City. And, you know, Sean just kept coming in and, you know, he's like talking to the people behind the, oh, could you read this? And somebody finally read something and said, it's not right for Sean, but it's really right for Ray Lolita. And Ray Lolita's, you know, read it and, hey, let's do something. And that led to a break where he started writing for some, um, you know, back TV stories, you know, some old stuff that people might not remember, but some stuff people might remember Castle, um, you know, yeah. one of those Bones, um, some of these shows. But, you know, and then and then taking big breaks where, you know, gets on and then nothing for a long time. And it's like, oh, maybe I'm not that good. No, you know, life happens when it's meant to happen. Mm-hmm. And so and again, that's why I'm saying. You know, maybe you're going to be 80 when it happens. And, you know, geez, Scott was in his 30s before anything even remotely took. And, you know, and people are like, give this thing up, dude. You're a better bartender than anything else. He said, you know what? The bartending gave him all the story ideas. The bartending is what he uses to write with. He's like, I come up with that all the time. It's like, you know, well, one time at a bar, you'd hear this, did you hear that? You know, write what you know. And it goes right into the stories. Yeah. Life experience. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't never look down on those things. Those things are amazing. Definitely. And then that's what makes the best comedians, too, is the ones that have lived a crazy life or have had all this stuff happen, you know. Yep. Uh, So you had a PBS show, The Sweet Life with Chris X. Aver, where you focused on taking recipes and making them healthier and sugar free. Um, So where did this idea for a show come about and what made you go with PBS? Um, um, so, you know, it was, I, it was, <laughs> okay, let me start that one again. <laughs> so I really, I was so in love with PBS my whole life. And honestly, in my baby book, there's a notation where my mother said she sits in front of the TV watching the galloping gourmet, who was a chef on PBS back in 1968, 1969. And I would honestly go and fill my own little bottle with whatever, cause I didn't drink milk and sit there and watch the Galloping Gourmet. I was fascinated with cooking shows on PBS. And when, you know, cable came in and all of that, they changed and I liked kind of that PBS sensibility that a little bit slower pace and the fact that it was 
giving back and it was about learning, not about razzmatazz and whatever. So I actually got to meet, um, you know, I was a super fan of PBS and I got to meet Lydia Bastianich. And I spoke to her and said, you know, I love cooking. I'm not a chef, but I would love to help people who have some of the health issues that I have understand how to cook for us because, you know, we have a different way of needing to eat when we're watching our blood sugar or our weight. And I would love to do something like that. I'm really wondering, does PBS have a place for that? Or is that something that has to be over on, you know, uh, kind of a cable because they're more niche and they can do, do more niche things. And she said, PBS, of course, has a place for you. And it was, it was so inspiring. And then I also, because I believe in doing your homework, I made it a point that I was going to meet Tyler Florence. Um, Tyler Florence had a home in Mill Valley. He was getting ready to open up a store in Mill Valley. I knew I was gonna put this thing together. And so I just intended to meet him. And so I'm, my sister-in-law lives in Mill Valley and she's like, you know, Tyler has a place. I said, I know he does and I'm going to meet him. I'm gonna be here for 10 days, I'm gonna meet him. And she's like, well, nobody's really seen him. I'm like, no, I'm going to meet him. <laughs> and so we went down and we had lunch and I walked into the store and there's Tyler. And I said, Tyler, I've been dying to meet you. I just wanna pick your brain. Um, and so he actually gave me the name for the show. I was going to call it something completely different. Um, and it was going to be delightfully delicious. And he's like, nope, it's the sweet life. And he looks at me and he said, it's not, he said, it's because you're changing their entire lives, not just, you know, a recipe. And I said, I'm going to want to use that. And he goes, why do you think I just gave it to you? <laughs> and I'm like, thank you. And we stopped and we talked and I said, you know, should I be doing cable? And I said, I really, I'm leaning towards PBS. He said, then go PBS. He's like, there's no problem going PBS. Well, there is a problem going PBS. And the problem with PBS is they gobble up free content, which is wonderful. You know, they want the content is provided to them for free. The model is you go and you find your uh, sponsors. And that's great because you can do that. I waited almost 18 months to get on with a man who does the sponsorship for these times, types of things. Oh. And he funds the Red Green Show, all of this other stuff. He takes 6% of what he's going to earn for you, which is fine. But he also takes a big uh, fee on top of that. And so I waited and waited and waited 18 months. We were already on PBS. We'd already gotten out. And I had self-funded all of this to the tune of a lot of money. Six figures well in. Right. Well, 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 well in. It's $1,000 an episode just to close caption. I had to rent equipment. I had to you know, pay for this, that, and the other. It's very, very, very expensive. And I had to get it out there. And, um, and so when I finally got all of this stuff all done and we were already locked in for two years, we were in 80% of the country for two years in, you know, number one markets. Like, this is amazing. We're in New York, we're in, um, you know, Chicago, we're in LA, you know, I mean, this is amazing. Now we just need to make some money to pay for this because we were already shooting season two and, you know, we got to pay for it. And when I finally get in with this guy, he says to me, I'm no longer doing this this way. This is the way I'm going to do it. And it's a different model. And it, it literally just priced me out. And I said, okay, so instead of 10%, why don't you take 20% and we don't do the upfronts because you see I'm already out there. Nope. Why don't you take 25, 30% and this small you know, stipend to hold it? Nope. I, I just couldn't come up with that much cash. I had outlaid so, you know, I'm a college professor. My base salary is $79,000 a year. You right. know, it's like, come on. 
Um, I couldn't come up with that much cash from how much I had already spent to get this into production. So somebody I knew um, was helping said, let's you know try this different tax. We're gonna do a spice line. We're gonna do a cookbook and we'll use those proceeds to fund the program. So we did those. We infused some more cash, some serious more cash into those things. I don't want to say which drug or I mean, uh, which grocery store, but a very, very, very prominent top five grocery store in the country took my spice line in and I was in, I had a meeting, I was in and I was in and out in the same week. And it was one of the most horrific things that's ever happened to me. I still have the email and every once in a while, when I want to beat myself up, I go and look at it. Mm. Um, um, This person who brought me in and told me to go ahead and pick out five and put them on. I was on, Rachel Ray was on the shelves. We were going to be there. I mean, this was enormous and it was probably going to be able to, to help fund the show, at least to keep it on for another season. He got promoted to another level. So he was no longer in charge of that area. And he'd been there for years. The next person who came in sent me an email and she said, hi, this is my name. I'm you know, so excited to meet you. However, I have some bad news. You're untested, I'm untested. The person who was here before me had the political capital to keep you in this role. I don't, so therefore I cannot bring you in. And I just spent thousands more dollars to make what are called shelf tags to put on at his direction. And so I was in and out in the same week. And after that, I just didn't have the energy to continue on. Um, Some people know I'd been um, in an accident and when I was shooting my show, I'd had a big leg brace on and and I'd just been through a lot at that point. And I was like, you know what? I need to kind of let this go. Okay, we had to wrap it up right there. Uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Chris Xaver. Um, I'm definitely gonna have Chris back on. Really want to talk to talk to her more about her career and uh, really get into some specifics about uh, the future of the media, uh, what news is going to look like in the next five, ten years or so. Uh, and yeah, it was a fun interview. And remember, as always, like, subscribe, follow. Tell a friend about the podcast. Um, it just really helps and um, gives me more incentive to, to find more guests for you. Uh, thanks again and have a good one.